Section 12 of The Vampire Nemesis and Other Weird Tales of the China Coast by Dolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Section 12 Death Grips 11. It seemed to me next morning incredible that I should have been brought down to Shanghai and then permitted to lie quietly in my own bed, making an attempt, however futile, to sleep. What new horror lay in store for me from that reptile? I asked myself as I rose, shivering from the effect of apprehension working on disordered nerves. This day would show, at least, I should know the worst. But no. The day passed quietly away. I stuck methodically to routine work, and would vouchsafe no reason to the rest of my staff for my speedy return. Once a horrible thought seized me. Why had I been made to return without my wife? Had I been permitted to consult her, she would certainly have accompanied me. Great God, could it be possible that that fiend... I dare not allow my mind to frame the ghastly thought, but I took the first opportunity of finding out where Rawdon was. To my relief, he was still at Shanghai. I cannot write down the horrible fear that assailed me. Two days later, Ethel followed me down from Chefu. She was looking frightened and distressed at my abrupt departure, but there was no look of reproach in the lovely eyes as she greeted me. Her sole anxiety had been for me. What was the matter of such urgency that had called me away without giving me time to say a word of farewell to her? But I could only answer evasively that it was business of the utmost importance. It was on the evening after her return that Rawdon, the parasite again, took possession of my body to work it as he willed. In our little drawing-room were some cherished specimens of old English tapestry, such as the ladies of the early part of the century had loved to work. They had been commenced by Ethel's grandmother, and finished by her mother, who had made a present of them to my wife. There was nothing in the whole house that she cherished with such reverent affection as these examples of bygone industry. And Arnold Rawdon knew of them, and knew the value she set on them. At least he must have known. Yet no, perhaps he did not. I cannot tell. I have long since given up all attempt to discover what the man saw with his own eyes and what with mine. We were sitting together in the room, as was our wont. Ethel was at the piano playing to me the airs she knew I loved, when my eyes, roaming over the walls, came ultimately to rest on the tapestries. I sat looking fixedly at them for some time, then rose and walked toward them, and began deliberately to tear them down. Ethel heard the rustle and flutter, as one after the other came to the ground and stopped playing. I felt her eyes turned on me with that old look of apprehension, and I felt the brutal cruelty of what I was doing. Yet I coolly picked up one of the pieces that lay at my feet and rent it deliberately in two. The stuff was rotten with age and yielded readily to my efforts. Then I took each half separately and tore it across again, and yet again, until a mass of shredded cloth was all that remained of the tapestry my wife had loved. I picked up the second piece, but here Ethel... Stung into action at seeing this ruthless destruction of her treasures, rose in agitation from her place and crossed to my side, imploring me to desist. I shall never forget that look of pleading, grief, and fear I saw in her eyes as I stood for a moment coldly regarding her. She uttered not a word. There was no need for words, with looks so eloquent, and I understood clearly every expression that flitted across her face. I realized perfectly the pain I was causing her, it was all so clear to me, yet disassociated from myself a sensation apart that had nothing to do with my actions. 
After gazing at her like this for a second or two, I laughed harshly, and seizing her roughly by the arm, led her back to her place and returned to my hellish work. I was destroying the last piece, gloating as I did so over my work, when I commenced to experience again that feeling of change that had come over me before in the public gardens. That indescribable something that told me my muscles were coming under the control of my own volition again. As before, too, my soul sprang eagerly forward to regain possession of the evacuated citadel, and almost before I was aware of it, I was myself, my own free-thinking self standing there, looking stupidly down at a piece of tapestry I held in my hands. I glanced across at Ethel. She had left her seat at the piano and had thrown herself face down on the couch. I could see the dainty shoulders heaving as she struggled to repress her sobs, as I crossed to her side to ask her forgiveness, to try and explain, I stopped abruptly as the bitter question formulated itself in my brain. What explanation could I offer? What could I tell her to excuse such an act? That someone at a distance had compelled me to do it against my will? Would Ethel understand? Would she not rather think her worst fear was confirmed, the fear that I read so plainly in those clear, horror-stricken eyes, that I had lost my reason? No, the thing was hopeless. I must let her think what she would. Explanations would but make it worse. And so with head bowed and utter hopelessness, I crept softly from the room and up to our bedroom. What was to be the end of it, I asked myself. Was this to go on until, under the fiend's relentless sway, I had driven my patient young wife from my side? As time progressed and it cost him less effort to dominate me, might he not keep me so the whole time and change me from what I was to what he wished me to be? Where was God that he could permit a human soul to be torn and tortured like this? And afterward? Aye, after. To what devilry was this the stepping stone? Would he bring his evil powers to bear on sweet Ethel, before my helpless eyes, perhaps, and sully her? No, no, a thousand times no. This, at least, I swore should never happen. Cost what it might to prevent. I was desperate now. God only knows what I would become ere that... I would strangle him, I would tear his vile heart out with my unaided fingers, or kill her before he succeeded in that. Even death would be better for Ethel than such a bondage. With such and kindred thoughts surging wildly through my brain, I sat there on the edge of the bed, wondering what was to be the outcome of this. When Ethel came trembling upstairs, she found me dressed as when I had left the drawing room, stretched on the bed, worn out with mental exhaustion and the bitterness of my thoughts. The climax came the next evening. End of section 12